no one would have believed in the first years of the 21st century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of the Internet. No one could have dreamed that we were being scrutinized as someone with a telescope studies stars that erupt and shine in the ocean of space. Few men even considered the possibility of astronomy podcasts from the University of Manchester. And yet, across the gulf of the Atlantic, British podcasters regarded the net with envious eyes, and slowly and surely they drew their plans against us. The Jodcast. Providing you with cutting-edge astronomy news. With Nick Rattenbury, Tim O'Brien, Stuart Lowe, Megan Argo, Ian Morrison and David Alt. The Jodcast. August issue. Hello and welcome to the August edition of The Jodcast. On this month's show... We talk to Dr. Tim O'Brien about a recurrent nova in the constellation of Ephucus. We talk to Joanna Ashwell, who is an amateur astronomer and PhD student, about her work. And we have what to look out for in the night sky. But first, before all of that, we have the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Cassini spots evidence of lakes on Titan. Results from Venus Express pose problems for weather experts. A sensitive survey of the high-energy X-ray sky shows a lack of black holes. And observations of the recent outburst of Nova Arasofuki show new details of stellar explosions. The Cassini spacecraft has returned images of the surface of Titan, which shows strong evidence of lakes. The images were taken using a radar system, where signals are transmitted towards the surface and the reflections are measured by the spacecraft. In this kind of image, smooth surfaces appear dark as the signals are reflected away from the transmitter, while rougher surfaces appear brighter as the signals are scattered in all directions. These new images from Cassini, taken on the 21st of July 2006, show dark patches scattered across Titan's northern hemisphere. The surface of the moon of Saturn is too cold for water to exist in liquid form, so scientists working on the mission have suggested that the lakes possibly consist of liquid methane or ethane. Methane exists as a gas in the Earth's atmosphere, but the surface and atmosphere of Titan are very different, and methane is likely to be stable in a liquid form. Further evidence for the lake hypothesis comes from channels which appear to flow into the lake-like features, also seen in the new Cassini images. These channels, like the lakes themselves, appear black in the radar images, implying that they are very smooth. If these features are lakes, Titan is only the second body in the solar system after the Earth, on which liquid features are thought to exist. The European Space Agency's Venus Express spacecraft has been studying the weather on Venus since it reached its final orbit in May. The enormous double-eyed vortex seen over the south pole of the planet on the first flyby of the craft earlier in the year has now been imaged in much greater detail. Using the Virtus instrument, scientists working on the mission have constructed a cross-section through the vortex to investigate how the structure varies with height above the surface. Virtus does this by taking images at a number of closely spaced wavelengths, with each wavelength probing the atmosphere at a slightly different height. The results show that the shape of the structure varies greatly with height. As yet, no one quite knows why the variations are so large, but the data coming from Virtus will help astronomers begin to model what is going on inside the thick atmosphere. A team of European and American astronomers carrying out a sensitive survey of the sky using instruments on the integral satellite sensitive to very high-energy X-rays have found evidence for far fewer black holes than were expected. It is thought that many galaxies have supermassive black holes at their centres, although many are probably hidden within large clouds of gas and dust, making them very hard to spot. The only light that escapes through this cloud has very high energies 
and is in the very short X-ray part of the electromagnetic spectrum. The sky glows faintly at these wavelengths, but the new results from the International Gamma-Ray Astrophysics Laboratory, or Integral, satellite show that there are not enough of these hidden black holes in the nearby universe to account for this background glow. If obscured black holes are the main cause of this emission, then it must be coming from the distant universe, from black holes in much younger galaxies. This could be because nearby older black holes have had time to consume or blow away the surrounding dust, leaving nothing to produce the X-rays, or that they are just better hidden than astronomers first thought. The astronomers working on this project, led by Loredana Bassani at the Integral Science Data Centre in Switzerland, and Volker Beckman at the Goddard Space Flight Centre in the USA, plan to extend their survey deeper into space to determine if either of these ideas are correct. Finally, results of the many observations of the recurrent nova Orosofuki, which went into outburst earlier this year, were published in the journal Nature in July. There will be an interview with our very own Dr Tim O'Brien, the lead author on the paper, later in the show. Thanks, Megan. And yes, that interview is coming up right after this invitation for you to join Jodrell Bank astronomers in a star party. In fact, it's Jodrell Bank's first public star party, and it's on Saturday the 12th of August from 9.30pm until midnight, with optical telescopes, weather permitting for observing the moon, the planets, and other exciting objects, including the Perseids, which is a meteor shower, which should hopefully provide some shooting stars. Macclesfield Astronomical Society will be there with a collection of telescopes, and there will also be 3D theatre trips to Mars. So if you're in the region of Jodrell Bank, in Macclesfield, in Cheshire, then hop along to the Star Party on the 12th of August. That's the 12th of August, 9.30 till midnight. Tickets cost £2.50 for adults or £1.50 for children, and Jodrell Bank astronomers and the Macclesfield Astronomical Society will be happy to show you all of the fantastic things that are up in the sky. Now, on the 12th of February 2006, a faint star in the constellation of Ophiuchus suddenly became many times brighter. It's known to astronomers as the recurrent nova RS Ophiuchi, and it undergoes these eruptions every 20 years or so. So Nick went to meet Jodrell Bank and indeed the Jodcast's very own Tim O'Brien, who is leading the research, to find out more about the current outburst. Right, thank you very much for coming to talk to us about your research, and it's exciting research, isn't it? It's, uh, it's new, literally new. <laughs> it is, us. yeah. It's, it's still going on in research, in fact. So right. it's, uh, it's something that, um, it's an area that, that sort of began at least uh, this time round uh, in February. So mm. in fact, when we came into work on, uh, on the morning of Monday the 13th of February, mm. um, there was an email uh, announcement, basically, that a star had exploded. A star had exploded? Yeah. It sort of catches your eye amongst the email list, doesn't it? So stars well, blown up. Well, funnily enough, stars do explode quite often. But this was this was actually a particularly a, a particular interest to us because it was a star that was well known to us. Um, it's a star called Aris Ophiuchi. Mm-hmm. Um, the name sort of comes from the constellation it's in. It's in the constellation of Ophiuchus, which is the serpent's bearer. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, that's the thirteenth sign of the zodiac. The sun's, sun spends more time in that constellation than it does in. Uh, in Scorpio. So That's right, I heard about this. There actually yeah. are 13 signs, yeah. But this is astronomy, not astrology, so we'll, we'll, move, <laughs> we'll, quick, we'll move quickly along. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, so, so, so we knew this thing. We knew, knew about this because it's actually exploded before. Um, so that was why we were sort of interested to see this particular explosion go off again. So the last time it exploded was 1985. Mm. Um, and this time around is 2006. So it's 21 years since it exploded before. Uh, and in fact, it's been seen quite a few times actually over the last century. So, if you sort of go through them. The first time it was noticed was 1938, uh, you know exactly when this was going to go off again, but in fact, uh, 
uh, 21 years is, is a reasonably long time. The gap, bef the gap the time before that was 18 years. So it right. was sort of overdue. In fact, funnily enough, we'd been discussing it a few weeks before and saying, oh, it's 21 years since RS <laughs> off went off. Maybe we ought to be looking out for it. It's about so, time. Now, you yeah. were intimately com uh, um, involved in, in a previous outburst, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, fun funnily enough, I, I, did my, uh, I did my PhD. Uh, in, I began in October 1985, my, my PhD. Uh, at Manchester, in fact, so not not at Jodrell Bank, but in the city of Manchester, which is about 20 miles north of here. Um, and the topic was the 1985 explosion of Arasafuki because it went off in January of 1985. Right. So I, I basically worked for three years on uh, on modelling the the explosion. So trying to under, trying to make a sort of mathematical model of the explosion and compare the predictions that model had for the for the X-ray observations, mm. largely, in fact, uh, of that of that explosion. So it was, it was sort of interesting. It's a story I used to tell was that, that uh, uh, I, I spent three years working on this one star, and it was only several years after finishing my PhD I realised I had no real idea where it was in the sky at all <laughs> <laughs> because it was a theoretical PhD. So. My, a minor detail. So you, you literally wrote the book on this, on this event, and it's gone bang again, which is must yeah, have been very exciting. Right. So yeah, what so. exactly is it? What, what's happened? Sure. Well, I mean, it's noticed. It's actually spotted by Japanese astronomers. It becomes r rather bright. So it brightens from a magnitude of about 11, which is mm -hmm. invisible to the, to the naked eye. It brightens to about a magnitude of 4.5, which makes it um, visible without a telescope. So, in fact, it literally would be a new star appearing right. in the sky. Um, That's what Nova means, isn't it? Just incidentally, it just means new. Yeah, it comes from Nova Stella, which right. is new star. Uh, For all those Latin scholars out there, <laughs> Nova Stella, <laughs> new Nova, star. Nova, pronounced with a Rochdale accent. So, you oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's um, it's actually not one star, though. Mm -hmm. This is the, this is the interesting thing. It was discovered in the 1960s, actually, that these objects are actually binary stars. There's two stars orbiting one another. Um, in most Novi. Uh, the one star is a sort of main sequence star, a bit like the sun, maybe a bit lower mass than the sun, and the other star is a white dwarf. So this is a star that uh, uh, used to be like the sun, used to be a main sequence star, burning hydrogen into helium at its core. Right. It's expanded to become a red giant at some point in the past, lost all its outer layers, and what's left behind at the middle is the, is the core of the star where all the nuclear reactions used to take place. Right. We call that a white dwarf. Mm. It's about the size of the Earth, um, but typically about the mass of the sun, right. something like that. I've, I've it's still a star, way. though, isn't it? Is it, is it, is it? It's not actually... There's no nuclear reactions going on inside it anymore, right. so really it is a dead star. Um, it's still very hot. They're typically very hot because they used to be the core of a star, so mm -hmm. they're very hot, and gradually they cool down, but it takes many, 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 many millions of years, perhaps billions of years, for these things to cool right down. Right. So they're still very hot things. So though you've got this binary star system, two stars orbiting one another... Uh, in a typical nova, the sort of separation of these two stars is about the size of the sun. So, in fact, you could sort of almost fit both stars within the sun as they right. circle around one another. So they're very, very close in, in astronomical terms there. Yeah, absolutely. And what that means is that has important consequences because it means that material from the what we call the secondary star, the, the other star, not, not the white dwarf, is sort of dragged off by the gravity of the white dwarf, falls onto the white dwarf's surface. And over probably thousands of years in these cases... Um, that material builds up, a layer builds up, and at some point, um, if you can imagine being at the bottom of this layer of stuff, there's mostly hydrogen piling in on top of you. If you're at the bottom of this, the weight sort of builds up on top of you, the pressure increases, temperature increases. You get to the point where you can start thermonuclear reactions, um, similar to the ones that, that go on inside the sun, that power the sun. Um, but, it, but it turns out the conditions are such that you don't have a sort of safety valve where once the nuclear reactions start, the sort of... Uh, the, the gases sort of expands to, to, to limit the reactions. That safety valve isn't there, and so these reactions just run away very quickly into an explosion. It's basically a bomb, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, yeah. a, huge, it's a huge hydrogen bomb. Right. That's what it is. And there's no point even trying to think about how huge it is because it's so many orders of magnitude greater <laughs> than the whole world's nuclear arsenal. It doesn't, doesn't make much... It's enough in that explosion... Um, Basically, the, the, the material that's sort of collected on the white dwarf is, is chucked off into space at maybe a speed of 1,000 kilometres a second or so. Right. Um, and there's about an Earth's mass or so of material kicked off. 
So if you can imagine taking the whole of the Earth and having to ac- the amount of energy needed to accelerate that from a standing start to a thousand kilometres a second is a, is a, is the amount of energy that's in that's in one of these uh, one of these explosions. Phenomenal. Yeah. So why is it that the the, the white dwarf accretes matter, draws matter off the yeah. the nearby star? Why is it? Is yeah. it just because it's so close? Is gravity that strong? What what's the what's yeah, the Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. There, um, if you can imagine, there's, there's possibly two mechanisms involved in this. Um, one is one goes by the exciting title of Roche lobe overflow, <laughs> which means that if you can imagine the sort of force of gravity between these two stars, you can imagine sitting at a point partway between them where it would more or less balance. Right. Okay. Um, if what ha- what seems to happen is that the, is that the secondary star expands, the sort of main sequence star has filled what we call its Roche lobe. So there's part of the surface of the star reaches the point where it effectively sort of falls over. Um, past this point where the forces are balanced and falls down onto the surface of the white dwarf. Right, right, so, right, right. So that's what often goes on in, in these objects. Sometimes it can be just a process of um, of gathering material from the wind of the other star. So stars have winds, the mm. sun has a, a solar wind, there's particles you know, being expelled by the star all the time, and, it, and, and some of that material could be captured by the gravity of the white dwarf. That's another way you can get material onto the white dwarf. Um, in this case, in Aris Afuki, um, it, it turns out it's slightly different and, and, in fact, makes it quite interesting. The, the secondary star is not a main-sequence star. It's already evolved. It's, it's, it's beyond that point of its evolution, and it's expanded to become a red giant. Right. So you've actually got a red giant and a white dwarf, but the same sort of process is going on. Materials captured from the red giant, either through this rush lobe overflow process or through the accretion of, of wind, and we're not actually sure ex- exactly what it is mm. yet. Um, and then this explosion takes place. What happens then in this case is when the ex- when the stuff's thrown off, it runs into the wind of the red giant. So surrounding this whole system is this sort of dense, sort of extended atmosphere of this of, the, of this sort of red giant star. Right. So, you so can the imagine, puffy puffy outer layers. Yeah, like. that's right. And so when this explosion goes off, it happens immediately. Stuff is chucked off and immediately starts to run into surrounding material. Mm. Now, um, what happens then? It must be like a <laughs> yeah. Well, what happens then is that that material is shocked. It's chucked off so fast, and the speeds are something like um, maybe as much as, uh, as as several thousand kilometers a second. So that's sort of you know millions of miles per hour. Mm. Um, it hits something, and that shocks it. That sends a shock wave, a blast wave. Sp- out through this red giant wind and back through the stuff that's been chucked out. So both things, you know, if you were thrown out, you'd feel an impact because you're hitting something. Yeah, it's right. the impact of the two things. And those shock waves um, heat the gas to temperatures of tens of millions of degrees. Tens Incred- of millions tens of degrees. Of millions of degrees. <laughs> so maybe 100 million degrees. Mm. That gas is so hot, uh, it generates x-rays. Um, so in fact, we see RSFUKI after the outburst, there's a very bright X-ray source. It becomes a very bright source of X-rays in the sky. Because X-rays in, in astronomy basically are a an indicator, a signal to us of very, very high energy yeah. physics, yeah. Very, yeah. You know, very powerful things going on. That's right. And also, we see radio waves from it. And, and what, what we found is that the radio waves that we see um, are explained by a mechanism that's called synchrotron radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and synchrotron radiation, in this case, it comes from electrons which have been accelerated by these shock waves to almost the speed of light. Mm-hmm. And as they sort of spiral around the magnetic field that's, that must be present there, uh, then they radiate, they radiate uh, radio waves in this case. And we see very bright radio emission um, from, this, uh, from this explosion, from these shock waves as a result. Now, last time round, back in 1985, um, RSOF was observed in X-rays um, by a satellite called Exosat, which was the European X-ray satellite. Um, and so we knew that there was going to be some bright X-ray emission. But of course, this time round, we were prepared for it. So, you know, the Monday morning of the 13th of February, yeah. we were ready. We knew we had to go and apply for time on these telescopes, mm-hmm. not just the X-ray telescopes, but radio telescopes as well, because we saw radio emission last time round. But this time, being ready for it, we could get even more powerful telescopes than we had 21 years ago, get them onto the case even quicker right. than we did last time and hope to see some, hope to track the whole uh, phenomena right from the start through to the finish of the outburst, which we didn't really manage to do last time. Mm. So sure enough, basically within a few days, um, X-ray emission was detected with several satellites, including the, uh, the SWIFT satellite and the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, RXTE. Um, 
showing basically the, the emission from this very hot gas, this tens of millions of degrees shock-heated gas that was, that was generated by the explosion. Mm. Two weeks after the, the outburst, well, within four days of the outburst, we actually used the Merlin telescopes in the UK, which are the radio, the radio network, network of radio telescopes in the UK, right. actually detected radio emission from RSF about four days after the explosion, which was actually a bit of a surprise, mm. because last time round we didn't see anything until about 18 days after the explosion, so it took us by yeah. surprise a little was bit. It, is it, even though you were looking for radio emission before 18 we days? We didn't look after four days last time, it must be said, but it was. We did see it brightening after 18 days, so we right. didn't expect it to come up until about a week or so after. So it, so it sort of beat us by maybe a few days to a week. Mm. It surprised us a little bit. Um, we quickly got onto the, uh, uh, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory's network of telescopes in, in the USA, um, the VLBA, which is a network of radio telescopes that spreads across from Hawaii to the Caribbean. Mm. Um, and we, and they made an, we made an observation with that array two weeks after the explosion, which was the, you know, the earliest that we, we could manage to do that. That's quite, quite a quick response, in fact. <laughs> um, and with that, we actually took an image that shows um, the shockwave itself. So although the, although the X-ray observations indicate to us that there's this hot gas there, and we would interpret that as being the result of a shockwave, Nobody before had been able to actually take a picture of that shockwave. Right. And the reason is because even though this shockwave is expanding at a speed of about 4 million miles an hour, mm. um, so two weeks after the explosion, if that explosion had taken place on the sun, for example, not right. that it would, but yeah. if it had, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. um, that shockwave would have expanded out to be about the size of the orbit of, somewhere between the orbits of Saturn and Uranus. So it's a large shockwave at that oh, time, yeah. but... Arasafuki is maybe about 5,000 light years away. Of course. So okay. if you took something that size and moved it to that huge distance, it actually appears incredibly tiny on the sky. Right. It's only right. five millionths of a degree across. So you wouldn't have been able to see that would just have been a, a, a spot. So with a, yeah, so with an X-ray telescope or even with an optical telescope, um, certainly with the, a normal optical telescope, you basically just see a, a point of light, a spot. Right. You don't resolve anything. With these huge radio telescope arrays, because they're spread across such large distances, they actually give us the highest resolution images in the whole of astronomy. You can see the smallest structures um, with those telescopes. So we could actually image this thing and see what was effectively a ring, right. which was this expanding shockwave. So and it wasn't a dot at all, it was actually when you see it closely when enough. When you see it close enough, it is a ring, a and ring. The, size, the size of it fits with the speed which we'd you know, inferred from the X-ray observation. So it's a really important observation in that sense, mm. is to actually you know, really pin down what these models are, uh, are, are otherwise predicting on from different parts of the spectrum. But what so, then? I mean, after, if you see a ring at a certain time, then mm, surely a, a certain time later you... See a bigger ring. Ah, <laughs> you see a bigger ring, okay. <laughs> so, in fact, the, well, the, the interesting thing is in this case, that when we first saw the image and we saw this ring, it was like, ah, oh, there we go, it's a ring, it's what, you know, great, it's confirmed these theories... Um, the sort of slightly strange thing about it is the ring is brighter, much brighter on one side than it was on the other. It's still not okay. entirely clear to us why that is. We have some ideas about what that might be, um, but I don't think I would argue that we haven't fully pinned that down yet. What happened then is that ring got bigger, which is what we'd expect because the shot wave is expanding. You can actually measure an expansion speed from that, which is 1,700 kilometres per second, 4 million miles an hour. Um, but also what happened is we saw extra bits of radio emission appear, on first on one side of this ring, right. and then on the other side. So in fact, from starting off being something ring-like in the middle, it started yeah. to sort of elongate sideways in a sort of east-west direction. What could possibly cause that? Well, what we, what, there's, there's two possibilities, really. Um, it could be that the explosion itself is not... The material's chucked off the white dwarf, not in all directions at once, Right, so it's not um, a perfect sort of sphere. Yeah, not a perfect explosion. sphere, but yeah. maybe in opposite directions, so jets. Ah, so, see. So jets are seen in astronomy quite a lot. Mm. Um, we see jets on galactic scales from supermassive black holes at the centres of these rad of radio galaxies spew jets out in opposite directions. Some stellar sources, so X-ray uh, binaries, for example, where you've got maybe a neutron star or something, or maybe even a black hole in a binary star system, also appear to shoot stuff out in... in in opposite directions in jets. And this is the first, the, the, this, this could well be the clearest um, evidence we have so far in one of these type of systems, which is a sort of white dwarf binary uh, of the existence of jets. Um, mm -hmm. It's not completely understood why, how, the, how these jets 
occur um, and so that it's sort of important to try and find as many examples as you can in different conditions so that you can mm. pin down exactly what the physics might be. So that's one possibility is that it's jets. Um, the other possibility is, uh, is that, that actually maybe the explosion was more spherical um, but then it gets shipped so it gets it maybe gets it's harder for it to expand in one direction than it is in another direction and so gradually it becomes more elongated and it could be that that's because this wind from this red giant that I've mentioned yeah. is actually sort of denser in, 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 in one plane, maybe in the plane of the orbit of the binary. So stars. it's essentially easier for the explosion to go in a particular direction or two, two yeah. particular directions yeah. as opposed to yeah. outwards so, all the time. And, yeah, and it just sort of gradually evolves to become this sort of elongated thing. And mm. I think we need to you know, work on the data a bit more and do some sort of calculations to see which of these might be, might be most likely in, the, in this case. And that's what uh, brings us to the, the theoretical side of, of, of this work, is that you're trying to learn a lot about how stars behave in general. Mm -hmm. So we have winds and we've yep. got jets and yep. we have explosions and mm -hmm. explosions and winds and jets and explosions and mm -hmm. stars and all that sort of carry on. The modelling of these sort of things, the theory, trying to understand them from basic physical principles and using computers must be incredibly difficult. Mm. It's not, well, as, you know, it's, it's not as difficult as, you know, I mean, I suppose it's, it is difficult, but it's not, not, you know, it's not obviously not impossible. And it's just a, um, it just relies on, 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 a, on a sort of knowledge of physics. And in, in this case, it relies on um, fluid dynamics, gas dynamics um, for, the, for these sort of shock waves. So if you, you know, it's the same sort of physics that applies to, you know, aerodynamics of aeroplanes or cars or whatever, the sort of motion of a gas um, and how that's so sh the shock wave that I referred to earlier in, in the case of aerodynamics in the case of aeroplanes that's basically what we call a sonic boom right so when a, when a, when a plane moves at faster than the speed of sound through the atmosphere then you get this shock wave that travels ahead of it mm. um, where in effect the, the gas ahead of it doesn't know the plane's coming right. because it's moving faster than the speed of sound and the sound waves that would travel through the air to let you know that something was on its way you'd mm -hmm. hear the noise of the engines coming towards you yes the plane's actually moving faster than the sound of the engines. And so if you were sitting there quite happily as a bit of the atmosphere, all of a sudden you'd get a bloody great shock when the, <laughs> when the plane smacks into you. So it's a shock It would wave. be shocking yeah. indeed. <laughs> so that's, that's why it's called a shock wave. So we understand things like planes and yeah. sort of ships going through water yeah. and stuff like that. It's all yeah. pretty much the same physics, yeah. you're saying. Yeah, it's, a, it's similar stuff. I mean, one of the areas that, that, that's still not that well understood in this case is I mentioned particles being accelerated mm, at mm. the shockwave and that's a bit of physics that's still quite hard to hard to really understand so so again these sorts of observations where we we infer that this particle acceleration process must be going on is, is giving us a bit of insight into that physics and helping to constrain the development of those sorts of models um, and that's particularly what you work on here, isn't it? It's the development of the models of these these stats. Yeah, other things yeah. We sort of combined. We we do we do quite a lot of calculations of the sort of gas dynamics of these explosions and the way in which the material is ejected. So we can combine these observations that we've been doing with the, with those models to try and refine refine our understanding. I mean, it seems that jets. I don't know whether anybody's seen these nice pictures of planetary nebulae that the Hubble Space Telescope has been taking over recent years, very pretty yes. uh, structured objects. And it seems in recent years there's been an increasing amount of evidence that, that some of that shaping is actually due to jets being ejected from what would actually be a white dwarf at the, at the, at the centre of this uh, planetary nebulae and possibly also associated with the fact that may, maybe a large number of these things have got binary star systems at the middle. Mm. So, again, it's the same Stirring sort things of, up. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. So, um, I mean, interestingly, the... What we've um, what, one of one of the interesting things that we found in this case is that uh, the white dwarf itself. I mentioned that we modelled this in 1985 and we looked at the shock waves producing the X-ray emission. Uh, one of the interesting things we found is that surprising things we found that was that after about th three or four weeks, um, although we think the X-ray emission in that first three or four weeks was probably caused by this shock heated stuff, this hot gas. Um, after that, the X-ray emission brightened massively, mm. suddenly brightened by a huge amount. Um, you know, two orders of magnitude, a hundred, hundred or so, a few hundred times brighter. Um, and we were a little bit taken aback by that at first. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that was unexpected. <laughs> it was a little bit unexpected. Um, but in fact, we should have expected it, really, um, because, because that's actually, we think, is the actually us seeing the hot white dwarf. So where the nuclear explosion has taken place on the surface of the white dwarf, we think we're actually getting to see the, the, the hot white dwarf itself where the nuclear explosion occurred. 
uh, and that itself is a, is a very bright source of X-rays. Why so, wouldn't you have seen it before? What's oh, stopping you seeing that's it? That's a good question. We're still we're, st- we're working out the details. We're working out the details of that as we speak. <laughs> ah, literally. good. Okay. <laughs> so that will be published in another paper in the future. So, <laughs> work in progress. Yeah, excellent. absolutely. So, um, I mean, I think just to uh, I mean just to finish off with a sort of prediction for the future, maybe for this. Very good. Yes, let's hear a prediction. <laughs> One of the one of the interesting questions about the about these things, it turns out I mentioned early on that that this process of gathering hydrogen gas from this companion and it building up and you getting an explosion, and maybe I sort of briefly mentioned that that might take thousands of years. Now clearly in this case we had an explosion 21 years ago. Mm, yeah. The time before that we had an explosion 18 years before that, nine years before that, 25 years before that. Mm, mm. So it, so in fact we're getting an explosion, you know relatively often mm. so it seems that in this particular system and there's several others like it uh, the explosion takes place much more often there's basically two types of novi that we talk about in this case we talk about classical novi which are the, the, the case where we only see one explosion right and maybe there'll be another one in maybe 10,000 years or something okay but obviously yep. we've only seen one at the moment in recorded history and then we call them recurrent novi simply because they've been seen to have more than one outburst and there's presumably a continuum of behaviour in terms of the outburst periods, you know, how often you get one of these outbursts. Right. So it must be something, it seems that it'll be something to do with the rate at which you gather hydrogen gas from, from the companion and to do with the mass of the white dwarf, it turns out. So the higher the mass of the white dwarf itself that this hydrogen is building up on, the higher the pressure at the base of the layer that builds up, if you can imagine that, because the force of gravity mm. will be higher. Um, so what would happen is you would reach the conditions for the explosion to occur quicker on the case of a high-mass white dwarf than you would on a low-mass white dwarf. Right, because you're, you're because it's such a high mass, yeah. gravity is higher, you're yeah. crushing everything yeah. together just yeah. that much more yeah. closely and therefore you get a, yeah. an explosion more yeah. often. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems that the, the, mo- the models suggest, models of the, the, this explosion suggest, um, that the, the, the white dwarf in Arisafuki is actually very close to what we call the, which is to, to the upper limit of mass that a white dwarf can have before it would collapse, basically. Um, that's called the Chandrasekhar mass, right. which is about it's about 1.4 solar masses, so about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. And it looks like uh, the, the RSF white dwarf must be very close to that limit. Now, if you get to that limit, then basically we, we expect that you get a collapse. The, the pressure increases inside the white dwarf and that actually starts thermonuclear reactions within the body of the white dwarf which lead rapidly to a, an explosion which completely destroys the white dwarf. Right. So instead of having an explosion on its surface, blowing off these outer layers, this process of gathering material starts again, another explosion occurs in another 20 years, what would happen is the white dwarf would be completely destroyed in a supernova explosion. Right. And that's what we think is the origin of things we call type 1A supernovae. Okay, uh, so you, you, you pile on so much, so much mass onto the, onto the white dwarf that it just can't take it anymore, and it collapses that, in big supernova explosion, that's, and that's it, no more, no more novi. Absolutely, that, that would be one idea for this, and so the, 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 one, of the sort of, one of the big important remaining questions, I think, for, the, for, for Arisafuki is, is the amount of mass, uh, is the mass of the white dwarf increasing or not? Now, right. if you can imagine, you're dumping stuff on, and you're blowing stuff off again in the mm. explosion. Now, if it turns out that you're dumping more stuff on every time than you are blowing off, then the mass of the white dwarf will gradually be increasing. Right. And so it's going to get closer and closer and closer to this limit, and at some point in the future, there'll be this gigantic supernova explosion, and there'll be no more Arisafuki outbursts after that, because there'll be no white dwarf to accrete the material on. Right. So but presumably that would mean, uh, because the, the white dwarf is slowly getting more and more massive, mm. then the, uh, the time between successive outbursts will be getting shorter that's, and shorter. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, I mean, you'd imagine that, but in fact we're, talk, we're probably talking about... It certainly seems to be that the period is not... It's not you don't see that. You don't see mm. evidence for that in the observations, basically. Um, and, of course, uh, the amount by which the mass of the white dwarf increases each time is only a tiny fraction of its actual mass. Right. So even if that were going to be true, if everything else was the same, if the rate at which you gathered material was exactly the same yeah, all the time, yeah. even then it would be quite a small fractional increase in the period. So it seems that, that there's more variation than that due to maybe variations in the rate at which material is gathered, I guess. So one, one outburst could be particularly exciting, good, and it could all of a sudden be, <laughs> oh, it's, it's now 18 years after the last one, or 
Kabang, it's a supernova, not yeah, a nova. That's right, and, and it'd uh, be a, quite a bit brighter than quite the, a bit brighter. Yeah, yeah. So that would be that would be quite exciting. It'd be a, it'd certainly be a naked eye visibility star then. Oh, very <laughs> yeah, exciting. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. What would be left after that? Would it be the white dwarf would have become a, a remnant of some kind? Would be I think completely destroyed. In fact, in that really? case, yeah. So, uh, so you wouldn't have anything like a neutron star, or a pulsar, or even no. a black hole afterwards. That no, would be I, don't, it. I don't don't think so, um, or at least we we don't we don't believe so. Um, because the question remained about what would happen to the companion star, whether mm. the companion star would be ripped apart in that explosion or not as well. It may well be. Uh, at the moment, it clearly does get, um, does survive the, the explosions on the White Dwarf, mm. although it's probably going to be affected by it a bit, heated up, yeah. bloated in some way, <laughs> um, but then probably settled back down again uh, sometime after the explosion. Right. So at the moment, we're just now following the... following the, uh, the explosion to its ultimate conclusion. So this stuff's expanding out... Um, we had a look recently with the Hubble Space Telescope just last week, in fact, just to see if we could... We haven't got the data back yet from that, but just to see if we could spot the expanding material with, in the optical, in fact, because obviously at some point it's going to expand out far enough that the, the Hubble Space Telescope should be able to image it. Obviously, two weeks after the explosion, we had to use a radio telescope to do right. that because they give us the, the sort of sharpest images, yeah. Yeah. the most zoomed-in, most magnified views, <laughs> if you like. There's a lovely series of images in um, in radio just showing over time how the the, yeah. the shell, this explosion, yeah. is expanding outwards. How, yeah. how much longer will you be able to do this before it becomes too too big, too faint? Yeah, what, you do, what, what you have to do is you have to change what instruments you're using typically. So we've already moved away from using these, uh, what we call VLBI, which is the Very Long Baseline Interferometry, mm-hmm. which is the acronym we have for this, where we have telescopes spread across continents. So in fact we used... The first image was taken with the VLBA, the Very Long Baseline Array in, in, in the USA. The second image taken a week after that was taken with the European VLBI network, right. which actually has the telescopes here, here at Jodrell Bank, and it has telescopes uh, across many European countries, and in fact it includes two telescopes in China and another telescope in South Africa. Right, very European. <laughs> yeah, so very, very inclusive. Um, and, uh, and then we followed it again with the VLBA for a, for, a, for a few more epochs. So in fact the last images we took with that were um, in, in May. We've also been following it with Merlin, which is the network of telescopes in, in the UK. They're spread across a smaller distance, just, just within the confines of, of the UK, about 200 kilometres. And so what they see, because they're not spread out as far, they won't see the very tiny structures, but as that sort of shockwave expands, it becomes possible for us to sort of image the shape and structure of it with Merlin. And so we move over from these very extended arrays to the more compact arrays, and we can still follow the evolution of structure. And we were doing that up until uh, very recently with Merlin, and we're continuing now to do it with the VLA, which is the American, the very large array in New Mexico, which is even more compact than Merlin is. Right. Um, but as the thing gets larger, you can switch from one array to another and follow the thing out. Um, so, so, yeah, that story is still continuing and will do for a, probably a, a few months yet. In the X-ray, we're hoping to sort of see the, uh, uh, to see the uh, shockwave again. Yeah. Um, so the shockwave was there initially and then it got sort of swamped by this bright, what we think is probably the white dwarf, the whole mm. white dwarf. Um, but then as that's faded, then the shockwave should become apparent again. So if we're interested in the whole story then we, we want to sort of follow it through to see to see how things eventually end up and see if we can perhaps compare the conditions after the explosion to maybe what the conditions were earlier maybe it'll give us a clue as to this question of whether the white dwarf is increasing in mass or not right very exciting i suppose it's a it's a, it's a neat um uh, a neat thing to be looking at because you kind of got a you're going to get something else in another 20 years' time, aren't you? It's going to go... You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean we just sit in our offices and twiddle our thumbs for 20 <laughs> years, honestly. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it was interesting for me in the sense that, you know, everybody remembers what they did in their PhD. Right, so yes. I, Even though it was a good long 21 years ago, I still just about remember that. Um, so, in fact, we had models that I developed at that time that you can test directly with these observations now. Mm. So that's, you know, a matter of personal interest, let alone the sort of astrophysical interest of this object. Um, and funnily enough, of course, it turns out that, you know, we got it wrong. To mm. some extent, we got it wrong last time round because uh, uh, we, we modelled the X-rays without including this hot white dwarf component. So I just looked at the shock waves, uh, and it turns out that certainly for, diff- for parts of the X-ray spectrum for the sort of lower energy X-rays, you really have to include the white dwarf as well. 
Right. Luckily, we mentioned it in, as an afterthought in one of our papers. Oh, right. It's, so it's, it's in the, you covered yourself. It's in the discussion of one of the papers that we probably ought to include that, and maybe that would actually be an important <laughs> contributor. It turns out that that is the case. So, uh, so we just got away with that, possibly. <laughs> it's very exciting to think that uh, how technology has uh, improved over the last 20 years since the last outburst. Oh, what, yeah. p- what could be possible in the next 20 years? Yeah. Uh, what instruments yeah. would be available and... What uh, in improvements in computing yeah. and modelling yeah. will, will be well, available by then? I, sh- I should say, I mean, the two the two major instruments that we've been using in the radio and X-ray part of the spectrum. In the radio, um, we've used uh, VLBA and an EVN European network. Neither of those were really operational in anything like so VLBA. Certainly wasn't. EVN was a very pro, you know uh, a very early stage. So that just wouldn't have been possible then to, to take these radio images of the shockwave at such an early stage. In the X-ray. Um, the comp- although the Exosat satellite looked at it, it looked at it sort of five or six times. Mm. Um, the first observation was 55 days after the explosion. This time round, we were onto it within a f- couple of days. Yes. And we've used the SWIFT satellite in particular, which is designed to look at gamma ray bursts. Mm. So it was designed as a satellite that could very rapidly um, slew round and point at a gamma ray burst, to which are very unexpected and rapidly changing events. The telescope has to be a very quick responding, hence the name SWIFT. Yes. Um, we've basically used that many, many times. The, 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 the NASA team that operates SWIFT have been very good to us. Um, in the case of Aris Ifuki, it's a very, very interesting object they, they recognised. And so in between gamma ray bursts, we've basically been getting observations of Aris Ifuki. So there are, there's a huge database. And in fact, with that, we've discovered you know, several major new uh, phenomena, in fact, with the SWIFT with the SWIFT satellite that we wouldn't have got if we hadn't observed it very regularly right. and very rapidly from the, from the beginning yes. and followed the thing all the way through. So it's quite important to have facilities available to you that you can sort of use you know, on a very regular basis over a period of time. So it's this sort of idea of time-variable astronomy, right. you know, sort of transient events. And I mean, as you know in your own research on, <laughs> yes. on planet discoveries... Yeah, the um, universe doesn't stay the same. No, <laughs> that's right. And, <laughs> and, and to pick up these, these events that are short-lived in your case like the spikes due to planets in the in the light curves of these these little lens stars then um uh you know you have to have a network of telescopes that's capable of observing a, a reasonably regular uh rate of knots basically yeah. very exciting stuff and yeah thank you very much indeed for, for, for talking about it yeah no problem thanks tim and nick and that does take the place of ask an astronomer this month i'm afraid with that slightly extended interview there now, joining us is a very friendly and familiar voice uh, on the Jodcast. It's Stuart. Hi, Hi there, Dave. Hi, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm joining you via the wonders of the interweb. Fantastic. Yes, I, I did notice the lack of presence beside me. Uh, where are you calling from? Um, I'm calling from the north of Italy. Oh, I'm working on a, a European Space Agency spacecraft, which will hopefully be launched in a couple of years' time. Wow. I know, it sounds very impressive, doesn't it? Yeah, that's quite incredible. That's brilliant. But perhaps we'll find out about that on a later show. Okay, well, I look forward to that. Uh, You're joining us for uh, a special reason. Uh, I am. Tell us more about that. Okay, so there are lots of exciting things happening in August. Um, There's the International Astronomical Union's General Assembly. What does that do? That's a big get-together of astronomers. It happens every three years. And this year it's in Prague, in the Czech Republic. Now, unfortunately, none of the regular presenters of the Jodcast um, had the time or the money, more yeah. importantly, the to get to the IAEA General Assembly. The Jodcast budget doesn't really stretch to that, really, does it? No, um, it's zero, so no, it doesn't stretch to anything. <laughs> so the General Assembly is happening in Prague, and that's from the 14th to the 25th of August. And as none of us are able to go, we've sent some of the... Sh- PhD students from Jodrell Bank instead. Oh, it's a hard so life for them, isn't it? It is. It's very hard life. Um, so Tony Reston and Debbie Mitchell will be our intrepid reporters. They will be interviewing astronomers at the symposia and in the poster sessions, and they'll be sending them back to us. And we'll be trying something a bit new and special for the Jodcast. We'll try to edit the interviews and put them on our Jodcast interview feed, which you can get to from the normal address for the website www.jodcast.net um, and we'll be putting almost same day interviews from the General Assembly so you'll be able to follow the General Assembly as it happens Wow, that sounds brilliant but, 
it's a bit of an experiment, so it may or may not work. Okay, well, um, I look forward to that, especially editing that. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us, uh, Stuart, and as I said... It's a pleasure, forward. as always. And now we move to an interview I made with Joanna Ashwell, who is a PhD student and amateur astronomer. Okay, with me in our Birmingham studios is Joanna Ashwell, um, an amateur astronomer from Stoke. Welcome to the Jodcast, Joe. Thank you. So, Joe, you're doing, uh, you're, you're just finishing off your PhD. Could you tell us a little bit uh, what it's about? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm just finishing off my last year of PhD at Keele. And I'm essentially looking at stars, or more specifically, just one, actually. Um, it's a star called J37 that's in the open cluster of NGC 6633, which is actually in the Southern Hemisphere, so we can't see it from Britain. Um, but this star is very, very unusual um, because it essentially has too much of the element lithium in it. And my big challenge is to work out why. Okay, what is so important about lithium? What is that telling us about the star? And, and you know, why is it so important? Well, when you look at the spectrum of a star, um, which you can do under the same sort of idea as putting a prism in front of sunlight, you obviously get a rainbow from it. But when you look at the spectrum of a star, you can actually pick out from that spectrum all the chemical elements that make up that star. You can work out exactly what it is made of. In most stars, the particular element lithium is destroyed because it burns at a very low temperature and most stars are therefore quite hot enough to burn it and destroy it completely very early in their lives. But this particular star, J37, um, actually has vast quantities of it within its atmosphere and we can't currently work out why it hasn't been destroyed. Uh, one theory is that it's actually been added during the star's life, perhaps by a planet falling into the star. Right, and how much evidence do we have of something like uh, a planet falling in? And how hot is the star itself? Well, the surface temperature of J37 um, is about 7,000 Kelvin, so it's quite a bit hotter than our sun. So, And, and a Kelvin is the same as, as Celsius, but 273 degrees less, is that right? That's right, but at these sort of temperatures, it, you can essentially really consider matter. them the yes. same thing. Mm -hmm. um, there is a certain amount of evidence for material falling into stars. There's a lot of research going on at the moment into stars with planets going around them, extrasolar planets. And a lot of those stars, those host stars, um, have very high, what are referred to as metallicities. Um, astronomers cheat a little bit. We have a very simple periodic table. It's basically got hydrogen, helium, and everything else is considered as metals. But all of the, the stars with uh, extrasolar planets around them uh, essentially have too much metal within them. And it's believed that that is the result of material when the planets were forming actually falling into the star. So there is a lot of indirect evidence for it. So what therefore makes J37 special? If planets would be falling into stars on a reasonably regular basis, if, if extrasolar planets are out there, um, then why is this particular one particularly special? Well, we know that J37 doesn't have any planets around it. And we know that it doesn't have an accretion disk around it either, i.e. the material that would potentially form a planet eventually. Um, we also know that J37 has a very, very thin surface layer to it. All stars have what's known as a convection layer around the outside of them. And therefore, any material that falls onto the surface of a star, into that convection layer, would normally get mixed with the rest of the constituents of the star and diluted to such an extent that you wouldn't actually notice it anymore. In the case of J37, the convection zone is very, very thin, and therefore you wouldn't need much material to fall onto the star at all for you to actually be able to see the effects of this. So basically what J37 is, is a star which doesn't have anything around it, but has evidence of things going into it. Yes, essentially. And, and we're trying to work out why. Um, there are several theories. Um, I say, well, one is the idea of material actually falling into the star, in which case we're trying to work out what that material could potentially be. The patterns that we've got at the moment by looking at the, the star spectrum, as I, as I mentioned before, um, suggests that it is a planet. The, the chemical elements present are actually similar to the composition of the Earth. Ah. So there could have been another Earth going around J37 that's just gone. 
well, certainly a rocky planet anyway. <laughs> right. Okay, moving away then from your research, you're um, an amateur astronomer in your own right. Uh, what, what is it that you do outside? Well, um, I own several telescopes of my own, um, which have been built up over quite a few years. Um, my interest in amateur astronomy first developed when I think I was about six Um, And I think like most astronomers, I had a look at a planet, in my case, Jupiter, um, and was just completely blown away by the view of it. I saw the Galilean satellites, I saw the cloud belts, and my parents were good enough to buy me my first telescope. Um, I think it cost all of about £50, and since then (laughs) I've bought some that have cost several thousand. But uh, it's just the enthusiasm to get out there and have a look at what up, what's up there. Um, and I'm starting to get into a little bit of astrophotography as well. Ah, right, because my first planet was Saturn. But if you can just explain to people why astronomy, what is so special about the stars that makes you think, wow, I want to discover more about these? Wow. Um... Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very big question. <laughs> Well, I think for me personally, it's just the, the, the wow factor of it. The, the fact that you can look through a telescope, well, you don't even have to look through a telescope to, to see a, a different world. But certainly looking at it through a telescope, you can learn an awful lot about it. And I just like the idea of learning how these things tick. Um, I very specifically uh, went down the path of stellar astrophysics as opposed to looking at galaxies or cosmology or anything like that. Um, just because the stars absolutely fascinate me, knowing what's going on inside them, these huge balls of gas that are so very dynamic. So you, you look at the, the stars, you're doing a bit of photography of the stars. Uh, is there anything else you do astronomically? Oh, definitely. Um, whilst I was going through my education, building up to where I am now, um, I was always desperate for more information about astronomy. Um, but unfortunately, there are very few people around that could give it to me, so... I'm out there trying to do it. Um, Admittedly, I'm only one person, but uh, I'm involved with several sort of science and particularly astronomy organisations. And I actually go out around schools teaching astronomy and trying to encourage them to run the GCSE astronomy course. Mm -hmm. And how do you find the reception of children who are getting their first taste of astronomy from a professional astronomer? Oh, wow factor, definitely. (laughs) I think they're being captured in exactly the same way as I was. There is no lack of enthusiasm whatsoever from the students. It is, unfortunately, in many cases, lack of budget and so forth within the schools. It's the only thing that's stopping them. It's something we really need to turn around. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Joe, thank you very much for coming on the Jodcast. That's quite all right. And uh, we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you. And now here to tell us what to look for in the August night sky, here's Ian Morrison. Well, in August... For astronomers, it's a good thing that the, the evenings are drawing in, and so it encourages one to go out and actually observe. One hasn't got to stay up quite so late as we've had to in June and July. Um, there's a very nice sky in, in the south in August, with particularly the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle rising in the east. Their three brightest stars, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, form what is called the Summer Triangle. If you start at the star Altair and work your way about a third of the way towards Vega, you come across a very nice little asterism, a group of stars called Brocky's Cluster, or more commonly the Coat Hanger, because that's just what it looks like. It lies in front of a great dust cloud called the Cygnus Rift, so it stands out pretty well. So that's a very, very nice area to look at, and if you have a small telescope, there are some lovely objects to observe within it. Particularly, there's the Ring Nebula in Lyra. It's the remnant of a star like our sun that's blown off the outer layers of the star, forming what looks like a little smoke ring in the sky. It's called M57. If you move towards the south from Vega, which will be almost overhead, in fact, you come to the constellation of Hercules. The four brightest stars make up what we call the keystone. It's like the keystone at the top of a bridge. If you go up the right-hand side of the keystone, about two-thirds of the way, you come to what in binoculars looks like a fuzzy glow. 
and in a telescope shows up beautifully. It's the globular cluster M13, the finest of these very old star clusters that we can see in the Northern Hemisphere. They date from the origin of our galaxy. Over to the right of Hercules, there's a rather faint constellation called Corona Borealis, a little crown of stars, and then we have the constellation of Bootes. Just above the horizon in the south, but sadly not well seen from the UK, we have the wonderful constellations of Sagittarius and Scorpius. They are towards the centre of our galaxy and very rich in objects, but they're so low we don't really see them very well. There's the very bright red star called Antares in Scorpius. But if you do manage to go on holiday somewhere in the Mediterranean or somewhere south like that, then with binoculars you can have a lovely look at these constellations. Let's have a look at the planets. Really, in our evening sky, we only have one planet visible this month. It's Jupiter. It's relatively low, and therefore it doesn't really show up as brightly as it sometimes does. And the atmosphere will reduce the quality of what you can see with a small telescope. It's in the constellation of Libra, and it's visible in the southwest after sunset. The other planets have actually moved into the morning sky. Saturn is in Cancer, very close to the Beehive Cluster, but it actually passes behind the Sun on August the 7th. But at the very end of the month, it may just be glimpsed in the east-northeast before dawn, and I'll come back to that later. Mercury passed between the Earth and the Sun on July the 18th, and that, in fact, becomes visible in the pre-dawn sky around the beginning of August, uh, on August the 9th, as we'll see, it comes within 5 degrees of Venus. Mars is virtually lost in the evening twilight. You might just see it at magnitude 2, low above the western horizon at the very beginning of the month. But to be honest, we really have to wait till uh, really next year to begin to see it well again. As I said, Venus is now shining brightly, low in the northeast before dawn. Because its declination that's its coordinate in one direction, is lower than that of the sun, it's not actually rising very high in the sky at the moment, so it doesn't look quite as prominent as it often does. Let's have a look at some highlights of August. The first is between about the 9th to the 12th of August, when we have a conjunction of Venus and Mercury, and they actually come to within two degrees of each other in the sky, so they'll fit very easily into the field of a pair of binoculars. And even, in fact, uh, if you have a, a rich field telescope, you could actually see them together in a, a wide field eyepiece. So that's quite a nice thing to look for, but of course you've got to get up pretty early to see them about half an hour or so before dawn. Now, August is the month when we have the Perseid meteor shower, perhaps one of the most dependable showers that we have each year. Sadly, this year the moon is going to be fairly bright. It's in fact just after full moon, so it's a gibbous moon, and it's waning, but it will be there in the sort of the southeast, just at the critical time. The best time to observe these meteors is, is, is really about somewhere between 11 o'clock and 3 in the morning, and the moon is going to be a problem. So, to be honest, this year one is not going to see a lot of meteors, all the fainter ones will be washed out by the light of the moon. But nevertheless, there are some bright meteors, and they will be sufficiently bright to see. So, in fact, you'll still see the most spectacular ones, but you won't see as many. So that's well worth looking out on the mornings of the 11th and the 12th of August. But again, you have to basically wait up pretty late or get up in the early hours to see them at their best. And finally... August the 21st and August the 22nd, we've got Mercury, Venus and Saturn all lined up in the morning sky before dawn. And on the 22nd, in fact, uh, the moon is amongst them too, a very, very thin crescent waning moon. So that would be a very nice skyscape to see, again, something like about 40 minutes or so before dawn on August the 22nd or the 21st, in which case the moon is going to be slightly higher in the sky. So there are a few things to look for, and of course, as the skies are darker for longer, 
we've got more time to go and enjoy our night sky. That brings us to the end of the August edition of the Jodcast, but don't forget, we'll have our special interview feeds from the International Astronomical Union's General Assembly, hopefully coming out over the next few weeks. So now it just remains for me to thank Tim O'Brien, Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Megan Argo and Ian Morrison for all their help during this month's Jodcast. Also to Seth Adamshare and Mark Brzee for providing us with the intro and outro voices. Of course, no attempt has been made to infringe or supersede any copyright regarding to War of the Worlds, the musical by Jeff Wayne. So, this is David Alt signing off for another issue of the Jodcast, and look forward to seeing you again next month. Goodbye. Looking good, going good. We're getting great pictures here at NASA Control, Pasadena. Podcast touched down on the internet 28 kilobytes from the aim point. We're looking at a remarkable landscape littered with different kinds of protocols HTTP, FTP. How about that, Bermuda? Fantastic. Look at that torrent stream. Hey, wait. I'm, I'm getting a no go signal. Now I'm losing one of the RSS feeds. Hey, Bermuda, you getting it? Nah. Uh, lost contact. There's a lot of logic blowing up there. Now I lost a second feed. We got problems. Full contact loss, Pasadena. Maybe the bandwidth? What's that podcast? See it? An astronomy podcast coming from Jodrell Bank. Kind of a, a big dome behind it. It's getting closer. You see it, Bermuda? Come in, Bermuda. Houston, come in. What's going on? Uh, tracking station 42 Azarius. Come in, Azarius. Tracking station 63, can you hear me, Kazaa? Can anybody hear me? Come in. Come in! <laughs>